if I were to ask you, raise your hands, just an informal poll, how many of you are swimmers? I mean, how many of you just love to get up and go swim? I know one of you is a swimmer. Anybody? Just, just two people? Three are swimmers. Bikers? This could be mountain road. This doesn't include Harleys. There's at least two or three of you. Runners? Probably the most of you would be runners. How about some, any of you put all those together? Wow. Just a few. Uh, today, we're going to begin thinking through the Ironman, uh, you, where you swim uh, 2.4 miles, you then bike 112 miles. I could think of nothing more grueling, probably emotionally, than biking 112 miles. And then you run a 26.2-mile uh, run called a marathon. Put that all together, you have... 140.6 miles worth of an event. This is the granddaddy of all ultra-athletic events. It started back in about 1978, and every time I see a video on it, um, especially if you watch the ones that, that toward, towards the end of the race, it, it just chokes me up. And I've almost often wondered why it does. And, and in my own life, I think it's because I want to persevere to the end, and this is a small picture of people who are persevering to the end. And, and those disciplines have to be done in that order. You have to swim, and then you bike, and then you run. And it just often makes me think about our spiritual Iron Man, that we're all called to persevere to the end. We are called first to be saved, and then to be sanctified, but then we are sent and we're sent on mission, and we should do that until the end. And I think today we're going to look at one of the most wonderful doctrines of grace, the perseverance of the saints, where we, we talk about that we are sinners and we need to be saved and how God planned our salvation from the beginning. As you saw if you were in Sunday school today, prior to the birth of Jesus, God and Jesus had figured this out. And then once he had planned it, Christ accomplishes it. The Spirit opens our heart to believe in the good news that Jesus came and died for our sins. And we are called, the fifth doctrine of grace there is we are called to persevere to the end and we want to do it with joy. And Paul often talks about racing um, in his letters. Uh, I, was, I remember when I first got here about seven years ago, somebody said, well, you can't use athletic illustrations. I'm like, sure I can. Paul uses athletic illustrations. I'm going to use them. Here are just a few on the issue of running a race or following the course. Uh, but I do not account my life of any value as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the, to the gospel of the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says, Do you not know that in, all, in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And so Paul's telling the Corinthians, using the athletic illustration, so run that you may obtain it. So it is not far-fetched for me to say that we are all in an iron man of life. In Galatians 2.2, I went up because of the revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And so today we're going to learn the lessons from the life of Paul. We're basically going to be doing a sweep of Acts, looking at the last chapter and then drawing out some lessons for our life. And so I've titled this Run with Endurance. We're going to look back at the race up to this point, Acts 1 through 12. We're going to 
finish strong the last leg and then we're going to look ahead and then we'll go 13 through 28 and just see what did Paul teach us uh, up to this time. We, we begin, though, where Jesus began in Matthew 5, verse 14, where he said, You are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. At the beginning of his ministry, he was calling disciples to himself, and he's saying, You guys are a city. You're to shine your light to the world. He would go on and say in that same passage, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's at the beginning of his ministry. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Matthew 16, 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, not Peter, but Peter's confession, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so you see, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you see this visible city, and at the end of his ministry, when he's getting ready to go, he talks about an unstoppable church. It's unstoppable. It gives me great hope when I see the news and hear all that's going on and, and, and you participate with unbelievers in certain things. You know it's unstoppable. And so we came into the book of Acts through the book of Luke and we see at the beginning of Luke's book because Acts is really this volume two. Luke is volume one. Uh, Acts is volume two. And so it's good to look at the introduction of Luke when he says, Inasmuch as I've undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished. It's a done deal. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. And so Paul is a, he's not only a physician, but he is a historian and he is accurate. We can trust what we get from Luke, not only because of who he is, but, but it's superintended by the Holy Spirit. And so what did he want to do? To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And what we learn from this introduction is the history of our faith helps us train others in the certainty of our faith. And Luke would go on and to share in his story from Jesus' birth. That's where you, Charlie Brown, uh, in the Peanuts version of it, that's where he got it, Luke chapter 2. It's still played today on national TV. You see the gospel go out. God will get his word out no matter what. And he walks through the life of Jesus up to the end when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and they don't even know who he is and they had wondered. But we had thought that he was going to come this way. And he says, you foolish, so weak in heart, let me show you from the scriptures that I had to suffer before I could succeed. And so then we began, and I uh, just looked it up on my phone earlier, uh, Labor Day of 2014 with Acts. If you remember way back then, I think I had a construction jacket on. I looked tough. We had the cones out here. The world's greatest construction project, that there's a lot of building going on in, in the Vale Valley, in the Eagle Valley. Uh, there are a lot of people in this congregation who are involved in construction, so they understood. They're like, oh, I get this illustration. There's a lot of work to be done. But the greatest construction project of all is what Jesus began to do and teach, and he's still doing this day. And so we challenged you in that first series to get caught up into the story and to get involved in Jesus' community. Here are just a few facts about the book of Acts. Number one, it's written by, the book, by Luke. It's the second in a two-volume series. It's true to history. It's robust in theology, and it's apologetic, and it's a ministry that he wrote this so Theophilus would know so that you would know, so that I would know, so that the world would know that there is 
a man named Jesus. He did live on this earth. He did go to a cross. He did rise again, and he's still working today. Amen? And it just took him a thousand and seven verses to do that. Um, and it's written before the fall of Jerusalem, AD 70. Why do we know that? Because we know Luke is careful. He's careful to what he writes. He would not have uh, left out a major fact like the burning of Jerusalem. And the outline that we're using is uh, from verse 8 of chapter 1, that the gospel will go out in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts or to the end of the earth. That is the outline we followed. And as if you followed along with us through these couple of years, you've seen that the structure is the gospel would go out. Some would believe it. Some would reject it. And then God's constantly protecting his church and moving that gospel across the world. There are frequent summaries about the word of God. And there's this ongoing narrative. It's an adventure. We Hopefully you got caught up uh, into the story. Uh, but there are many errant views that come out of the book of Acts. And so this is very descriptive, is not always prescriptive. And um, we wanted you to see throughout this whole book that the simple message of a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and what comes from that is all that we're about. And so here's kind of a summary of the, the book or theme that the sovereign acts of God, ministry of his son, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the mission of his people. You see the Trinity and God's community at work there. And you see that in the first few verses of the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, notice this, began to do and teach. He started something. He started something. He began to do and teach. He was educating others. And so Jesus was a teacher. He left us his final uh, mission to us is that we should go and teach others. We are all called to teach in some way. And so in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So he ascended chapter 2, and he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so you see the exaltation of Jesus and the commission of the apostles, that Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. We are not the big A apostles. We're not big A apostles who have literally seen Jesus, and they were gifted by the Spirit to write Scripture, but we are sent with the same mission, and we are sent with the same power. Amen? It's still just, I guess over the past three weeks, three or four weeks, you've heard this over and over. The same power that was in Paul the Apostle, the Holy Spirit, is in you and I if you believe the Lord Jesus. That should be enough. We could stop right there and go home and you could be going, amen, brother, preach it. You could say that. It's all good. Here's the theme verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that same Spirit is in us. And so you see there in Acts 1 through 3 that Jesus goes up. He had to go up. In fact, he, 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 he told his apostles beforehand in the book of John, Hey, it is better that I go away. Imagine that. This is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. It is better that I go away. But I would like you here. No, no, it's better that I go away and I'll send another helper. So if Jesus was a helper, he'd send another helper, the Holy Spirit. He goes up, the Spirit in chapter 2 comes down, and the church goes out. 
And that is Jesus now reigns. It's inaugurated. He sits on the throne. He waits until God the Father says, it is time. The Spirit, He is inside of us. Go read Romans 8, 1 through 11. What a wonderful passage of Scripture just to minister to your soul that Jesus is inside of you because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He guides. He convicts the world of sin. He comforts the believer. And He guides us. Galatians 5, 25. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. And that's then you and I, because Jesus is reigning and because we've been enabled, we can go out. We can go to the world. And really, Luke, all he had to do was write those three chapters, and it would have made sense. Jesus gave us a commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and baptize all, go to all the nations and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to obey. And so all of us to some degree are called to teach, and therefore all of us to some degree are learners. What happens when the church goes out? Acts 4 and 5, that you're going to get opposition from without, outside the church. You've faced it before. Whether you go to school, to the workplace, the coffee shop, you go out, and you will face opposition. It is not always um, um, hostile. Sometimes it's friendly. Just last Wednesday night, it was friendly, but it was opposition. Those men that I got to spend some time with, have dinner with, and share a radio show with, they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and they need to. And we talk about it often. There's opposition from without. But sometimes you see, even in Acts 5, there's iniquity inside. There's opposition from within. That, that we are humans and we wrestle with the flesh. And so there's sin from within. And so very early on in the book of Acts, Luke shows us that God will deal with sin even in his own people. And thus, leadership is needed. Uh, there were people who were showing favoritism. And so, so Peter says, look, we're going to... Or we're not going to organize the tables, but you guys pick from among yourselves seven men who will be able to lead, and we'll give ourselves to prayer and the teaching of the word. And so there is a, you see the infancy, the structure of elders and deacons and leadership. So leadership is good. It is not a worldly thing. Leadership is a biblical thing. And there's this unity and a hierarchy. And then persecution is expected. That Stephen would go out and he would speak to his own people and he would basically walk them through the Old Testament and he would die for his faith. And so that was the first series um, in our walk through the book of Acts. And in the second series, we had this picture of the gospel going out to the world. If you can pull that up there. And if you notice, just look closely. I did kind of some, some, you know, looking into the... That, it looks like eagle and gypsum where that in the United States is where that's going out. Pretty cool. They didn't mean to do that, but I thought it was neat. It was global expansion. And here's what you get in 8 through 12. So it's not, this isn't just a Jewish religion. This is, in fact, an, another, this is Christianity. This is the Jewish religion complete in Jesus. And it's not just going to stay in Jerusalem. It's going to go to the ends of the earth. And so you see this expansion in 8. And then in 9, you see this foreshadowing. We were introduced to this person named Saul who would become Paul. And then you see in chapter 10, 11 and 12, you would see that Peter, one of the Jewish apostles, would go to the Gentiles and he would see, he would remember that. He would say, hey, Lord, I've, I've never done anything impure. And, and God said, you know what? It is okay. Have some shrimp. It is okay. And so he had shrimp. Right there, I don't know if it was shrimp, it just said unclean animals. But uh, the idea is that Peter 
the one who was following the Jewish religion, who was faithful to his Jewish religion, God said, no more. We are Christians. You're going out, and it is okay. And then the church is at Antioch. That's the first place where we are called Christians, little Christ, followers of Jesus. And then you see James, who was kind of the head of the Jewish church, killed, and Peter is rescued. And one of the key themes through the book of Acts is Peter is rescued. Do you remember how he was rescued? It wasn't like he was in chains and he's like, I am Peter. He was in chains and all of a sudden the chains fell off because of God's miraculous work and the gates are open. And as Peter walks, he see, he goes to a place where the Christians were and there they were. And you know what they were doing? Praying. God, release Peter. Peter's at the door. This little girl shows up. No way. It must be his ghost. And she goes back and he's like, it's me. I can't even believe it. Here they are praying for a guy and God does the work. And that same God still does his work and he does it through prayer. <clears throat> that was the second series. And then we entered, entered the longest uh, series in this book of Acts. We called it Paul's Travels into the Remote Nations of the World in four parts. And so here are those four parts for you. That he went on his first missionary journey and he established churches in Galatia. And then he went on his second missionary journey and he established a church at Thessalonica. And then he went on his third missionary journey. And you see just it growing that he went to Philippi and Ephesus and all these churches that we read about in the New Testament. This is literally when they're happening. And we find ourselves in chapter 28. Paul is been on trial, he's been in prison, and now we're going to see him make it to Rome just as God had promised. Acts 28, verse 1. <clears throat> and after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. Uh, I was visiting with a young man who's overseeing a ministry here in the valley, called Snowboarders, Snowboarders and Skiers for Christ. And he was telling me about how last year at the end of this first season that they were doing this thing, that the unbelievers who were coming to this ministry were desiring to see it continue and flourish. And they started to bring the food. They wanted to make sure everything got set up. And I, I thought of myself, that was unusual kindness that these unbelievers would show the believers. And so you see that here, Paul and the, and the people had landed, and here they come and show unusual kindness. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened to his hand. Can you imagine that? And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Notice here, justice. And the ESV capitalizes justice. Even the native people believed in a higher being outside themselves has not allowed him to live. <clears throat> What's going to happen to Paul? Verse 5, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune, could you imagine that? A snake comes and grabs on to, to Paul's hand. And he just kind of goes, and just carrying on, probably teaching the people about Jesus. And they're all just sitting there going, okay, okay. No swelling, nothing. And they said, he must be 
God. But what you see here is, though Luke is a great historian and reports what happened, it's not necessarily that we're supposed to say, oh, I see, we've missed it all along, Paul is a God. No, Luke is merely reporting Paul is not a God, but as we'll see in the next paragraph, he relates to the living God and prays to him. We'll see this in verse 7 through 10. Now, in the neighborhood of that place, where the lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, he who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him, and look what he did. He prayed, and he put his hands on him and healed him. So Paul, he, he's at Malta. He's, he's still doing the same things. He's going and praying. He's, he's using his gifts to promote the gospel. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people of the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And if you're reading through that, you're thinking to yourself, this sounds really similar to somebody else. Look at Matthew 4, 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And you're supposed to see, you're supposed to make the connection that at the end of the book of Acts, in chapter 28, all that Jesus began to do and teach, all that he began to do and teach in the book of Luke, you see it carried out through the apostles. And you see the apostle Paul, he's doing the same ministry, same thing. And so in verse 10, they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. It got me thinking this morning when I was reviewing this. God constantly provides through his people and sometimes he uses the unbeliever. You see it in in the book of uh, Exodus when the Egyptians were basically saying, go worship your God and take all this with you. Um, you see it in, in Nehemiah in the exile where they were coming back and Nehemiah was shown favor. He prayed about it and he said, here's my plan and uh, I'd like for you to provide for us. And so the king at that time said, no problem. And so you see the same theme running through scripture. You see the same story. And after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Interesting. You don't see Paul going, twin gods. I can't believe there's twin gods on this ship. I'm not going to get on this ship. Paul didn't boycott the ship because it had pagan affiliations. He just got on and he went about his business. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petoli. And we found brothers. I love this. It says we found brothers. This is not Paul's physical brothers. It's not like Judd and Jared or Ben and Kevin. This is not brothers. This is brothers in the Lord. We found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. He arrived. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so it was a long journey. It was a good journey guided by God. I think there should be a map to follow just to show you one more time. Here is what it looks like. 
Then from Jerusalem to Caesarea, Sidon, around Cyprus, uh, there's Myra, there's Nidus, and he goes down to Fair Havens. That's where they, he said, let's not do this. And they said, nah, we can make it. Then you see this shipwreck, and they finally hit Malta and right up the coast of Italy on in to Rome. Daryl Bach, I think, does a wonderful job of summarizing Paul's trip. In sum, and think about this in your own life. This passage is about the details of a long journey undertaken by someone who is obeying God's will and being protected by divine providence. In effect, Luke is indicating that God knew what he was doing with Paul, even though everything about the circumstances looked problematic. Paul was an agent of hope. His use of human wisdom in the positive sense of that phrase as a provider of a clear testimony, his servant attitude, all of which became an encouragement as well as an example for Luke's readers. And so you could easily go back and take Dr. Bach's words and put in some the passage is about the details of a long journey undertaken by us who are obeying God's will and being protected by divine providence. In effect, Luke is indicating that God knew what he was doing with us through everything about the circ- though everything about the circumstances might look problematic. Ladies and gentlemen, beloved, we are agents of hope. And we use human wisdom in a positive sense to provide a clear testimony in the positive or in, in a servant's attitude to be an encouragement to all. But he says this, the most important theme of the passage is that God can be taken at his word. God told Paul and God tells us that he, the messenger, would reach Rome, and God did. God told Paul and he tells us that no lives would be lost and none were. And God told Paul and he tells us that the ship would run aground and it did. God's word can be trusted because God can be trusted. Amen? God's word can be trusted. And so, here we find Paul in Rome. And after three days, they get there, he gets settled in. You know, he's got this guard by him, but he has some freedom. And so he called together local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have done none, none, though I have done none, excuse me, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. Notice his language here. You're going to see it change. Notice I've done nothing against our people or our fathers. Hang on to that. Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hand of the Romans. And when they, the Romans, had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there is no reason for death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. He's just saying, I'm appealing to the greatest uh, source that I can appeal to, though I'm not really going against Caesar. I'm just showing the Jews that I have done nothing wrong, and he didn't. And for this reason, verse 20, therefore, I've asked to see you, the Jews, and speak with you. Why did he want to see the Jews in Rome? Since it was because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the hope of Israel. And so we carry that same message. This is the hope of Israel, and we can expand it now. This is the hope of Syria. This is the hope of Africa. This is the hope of Russia. This is the hope of America. And his name is Jesus. Paul was Paul never stopped preaching the gospel. 
He didn't, he didn't start like many of us do in our young days. We're so eager to cel- celebrate the good news. We're so eager to, eager to share it. We go out, it's like we can't talk about it enough, but then we grow up, so to speak, and we get a little older, we get a little bit more responsibility, and it becomes kind of this thing we do now and again. I hope you have seen through the book of Acts, Paul never stopped preaching the gospel, and we should never stop preaching the gospel. And so what was the Jews' response? I love this. They said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you. All this time, you remember there were those, those Jews from Asia that they were coming, they were like, we're going to tell everybody, they're going to know. Didn't make it. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So here are the Jews in Rome not having heard about Paul. But here's what they did here. We, we desire to hear from you, verse 22, what your views are for we regard with regard to this sect. We, we haven't heard anything negative about you, Paul, but we've heard of this sect. We know that everywhere it is spoken against when they were talking about Christianity. And so verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. Here they come, they're flocking in. And from morning till evening, that's all day, he expounded, he explained, he unfolded, he made clear. What did he do? He made clear to them the testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law and from the prophets. And again, if you go back to the book of Acts at the very beginning, so when they had come together, they said, Lord, when will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know. And so there's this kingdom language that bookends the chapter. When is it going to happen? It's not for you to know. You just go out and you just keep talking about the kingdom. You keep talking about King Jesus. You keep talking about the good news. The necessity that people need to repent. The necessity that upon repentance they are forgiven of their sins and they are given a commission to continue to go. And so Paul is speaking of this kingdom. Trying to convince. He's using all within his human powers to persuade about Jesus from the law and the prophets. He, he had the Old Testament. We have the old and the new. And some were convinced by what he said. You see this pattern again. Preach the gospel, some accept it, but others disbelieved, some rejected. And then they were disagreeing among themselves. They departed a, after Paul had made one statement. So Paul gives them one statement that causes a ruckus. The Holy Spirit was right in saying, now watch the language change to your father's. Earlier, he had said, our fathers. Now he says, to your fathers. I think the reason he changes that is he understands that he is a Jew and from the nation of the Jews. But now, because they have not accepted Jesus Christ, they are not a citizen of heaven. And so those are your fathers. And here's what he says. He appeals to Isaiah. He goes all the way back to their Old Testament through Isaiah the prophet. Here's the problem. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. There was a prophecy in the Old Testament saying, there will be some who reject this forever. They are blind, deaf, and unresponsive. And ladies and gentlemen, that should be comforting to you that when you go out and share the faith people may turn away they may just not see what you see they may not hear what you hear and they may be unresponsive to the gospel but you stay faithful 
But what it does is it, it, it should convict you and comfort you that it doesn't ultimately. Could God save people and just from, from the beginning of time? Saved, 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 saved. That's what he could do, but he hasn't. He's chosen to use us. We're vessels. We're called jars of clay, and we've got this enormous, wonderful message that we carry. And so we can go in our weakness, and we can know that when we share this, it doesn't matter how eloquent we are. And it's humbling, but it's comforting. It's humbling because you go to a radio show, and you get all geared up, and you try to get all your ducks in a row. And you could say it as perfectly as you can, but if the Holy Spirit isn't work, they're not going to turn and hear. That doesn't mean that next time I do a radio show, I'm, just, I'm not going to prepare. But I could go into that same radio show and fumble and bumble over my words. And if the Spirit is moving, it doesn't matter how hardened one's heart is, they're going to believe. When the Spirit works in the human heart, there is no turning back. It's called irresistible grace. And so Paul says in verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. If you guys aren't going to hear this, I'm going to go somewhere else. He said in Romans, I go to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. That doesn't mean, as you've seen in his ministry, he's outright rejecting the Jews. What he's saying is, if you're not going to follow, if you're not going to see that this whole Old Testament, 39 books, all the way through Malachi, this whole Old Testament, 39 books, of which maybe next week we'll walk through all 39 of them and see 39 reasons to celebrate Jesus. Why not? Why not? If you can't see how that points to Jesus, I'll go somewhere where they'll listen. Now, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you have a verse 29 in there. If you don't, you probably have a footnote in the verse either in brackets or off to the sides. Why is that? As we've discussed before, it's a text-critical issue. And so I've given you the pillar commentary so you can read it for yourselves. Readers of the King James Version and the New King James Version will discover an extra verse which is not replicated in other English translations. And here is that verse. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great reasoning among themselves. Certain Western texts added these words, which were then ad adopted by the Byzantine text. However, this reading is late and not widely attested, being absent from the earliest Greek manuscripts. And so what Bruce Metzger and these guys have said is, we're laying out the earliest Greek manuscripts and they're not in there. So the event happened here. Here are the earliest texts. We're not seeing this. We're thinking this verse was added later because there was such an abrupt change um, from 29 to 30. However, the reading is late, not widely attested, being absent. And so it is clearly represents what must have taken place, especially in view of the division and disagreement noted in 24 and 25, but is unlikely to be what Luke wrote. So there's good reason why some translations leave it out or put it in a footnote. And here's the key. The addition was probably made because of the abrupt transition from verse 28 to verse 30. So don't don't, don't not read the rest of your Bible because there's a verse missing. It probably wasn't the original, and so they're just making you aware of it. You know, that's one thing I, we said last Wednesday, both myself and another pastor, he said, that's one thing we'll tell you about our particular religion is we will, we will show you where we 
as Christians, humans, have not rightly followed Jesus, and we show you where we, we have gone wrong in, in political things. And here's, we're so confident that this is the Word of God. We'll show you. Here's what the early manuscripts say. Here's what the later manuscripts say. And we have no doubt that this is still the Word of God. We have nothing to hide. Amen? And so how does this book end? It ends with Paul living in Rome. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. I want to make a comment on that. It's not that Paul was earning any money. Uh, one one uh, commentary says this, at his own expense, puts the focus on his responsibility for the cost. But it's possible to refer to the type of dwelling. That is, if you have a King James or a New King James, Here's the point. Only the privileged and the aristocratic few could afford to purchase and rent private houses. And so it is likely that Paul lived in a room, a rented room, that's the idea, uh, of one of the many thousands of buildings in Rome. And so here he is living in a rented room. And what did he do? He welcomed all who came to him. Sounds like what we should do at church. We're, we're in a rented room and we're welcoming anybody who will come through the doors. And what are we doing when they come through the doors? Just like Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And how are we doing that? We're doing it with all boldness and without hindrance. That Paul was consistent from beginning to end in what he preached. That Paul was hospitable. Paul was a witness. He's speaking of the God's kingdom. That there's a, there's a God who exists and he rules the world and his son is King Jesus and he sits at the, his right hand until he sends him back again. And we should say that with boldness. We shouldn't be timid like, oh, I, I think this is, you know, I, I think Adam and Eve may have been real. I don't know. I mean, it could be a story. I mean, the whole Jonah thing, it could just be a narrative. And no, it happened. It is real. We say it. We say it with boldness. We say it with a smile on our face. And then it ends. And, there, and if you want to, if you're having trouble sleeping tonight, you want to read like six commentaries on why does it just end like that? Everybody gives it like six pages each. I'm like, it just ends. Well, historically, uh, here, here, here are all the theories on the abrupt ending of the book of Acts. Historically, Luke didn't get anything else. I mean, he's such a good historian. He just, and I'm like, he didn't need to get anything else. Biographically, oh, we start to speculate. He had volume one was Luke. Volume two is Acts. He was getting ready to write volume three, and thus he was waiting. No. Theologically, he was, had a purpose. It's a purpose for us. It was to evoke excitement of this ongoing mission. He lived there for two years. Tradition says Paul was killed, but the mission remains for you and I. Amen? The mission is still the same. So what can we learn from the life of Paul? If he went from morning to evening, I can too. So let's just... Go back through 13 through 28. Lessons from the life of Paul. If you need to get up and get a cup of coffee, that's fine. We'll only be here a couple more hours. I'm kidding. I'm going to make this short, sweet, and to the point. Number one, from the beginning, we learn about partnership. Paul didn't do it by himself. We often hold up Paul as this great missionary, but it was Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Barnabas. Paul surrounded himself with people. Everybody needs a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Everybody needs a Paul to look to. Everybody needs a Barnabas to walk with. And everybody needs a Timothy to train up. I, I sit there and I, I was thinking today, if you're going to say this, you better have this. No problem. 
I have. There is a Tom Nelson. He's a Paul. He's the guy that was my father, spiritual father in the ministry. There's John MacArthur, John Piper, Alistair Begg. I've, I've never met those guys. Actually, I've met Piper. I've never met Begg and MacArthur. But I consider them confidants. Though distant, they're distant disciples. They're my Pauls. I look to them. If there's an issue that goes on in the church, I will Google them. I will just read how are they taking, how have they addressed such issues. I look to them. If you need a Barnabas, there, there's, a, there's a Craig Smith at the Vale Church. I walk with him. We're both lead pastors in this valley. And so it used to be when you said that name, Craig Smith in the Vale Church in Eagle Bible Church, people were like, whoa, hey, we get along. Have from the very beginning. Great guy. Love him. He and I walk together. We, we trade stories. We joke around with each other. We, we encourage each other. We pray for each other. And then, and then there are Timothys. And I've had lots of them. Back in Denton, I had a guy named Mark Henley that I poured into here. you got the men in compass. But I especially am fond of those guys that they say they come to me and you can just see it in their eyes. Hey, can we get a cup of coffee? Yeah. Hey, we're, we've, can we meet and can we talk about the scripture? Yeah. Hey, I'm thinking about going to seminary. And then I just get a big smile because I'm like, I, w- I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking because I'm just sitting there. I was like, I was there. And they come and they're like, I'm reading through this many books. Keep on at it, buddy. Just don't ever give up. You're a soft, sensitive heart for Jesus. Be joyful. Read all it. Do it. And they, what about this crazy theology? What about that? Ah, just keep reading, buddy. You just need to keep going. Keep pressing on. Hey, can I get involved? Absolutely. And you pour into guys like that. You, you minister to everyone, but you, there are those that come to you, and there are those that you see, and you pour into them. That's what was happening here. Paul saw Timothy. He observed him. Man, this young man... I see something in him, and I'm not going to be able to do it on my own. And so, what do you learn from that? You can't do it on your own. This is not a Lone Ranger Christianity. It's not just me and my Bible. It's not just me and Ashley and our our Bibles. And it's not just our little family, but we have to be involved in something bigger. It's called the church. For chapter 14, really it's at the end of chapter 15, but I've put it in 14 for teaching sake that disagreements will happen, that Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways. They had some issues, and they had to work through those, but the ministry continued through both of them. And then chapter 15, standards. Standards are good. And these were standards, if you remember back to chapter 15, these weren't, these were accustomed to Scripture and according to Scripture, but they weren't just necessarily Bible verses, but they had standards, and standards are good. If they adhere to the Bible and they promote the gospel, and that's why they did it. Verse 15, we call it counsel and creed. Chapter 16, you see that there are all types of people who follow Jesus, and this is one of the greatest things to learn. The quicker you learn this, the better off you'll be. There are all types of people. There are rich women, slave girls, blue-collar workers, political leaders, and we could go on. I could name, without naming names, different industries and different type of people even in this congregation and the quicker we learn this the better because there's no plug and play oh there are some some essential elements to ministry you must read the word of god you must pray to the sovereign god who can do good things you must do those things you must obey the scriptures you must fellowship with believers and you must evangelize the lost 
that looks different for different people. And so the way I read Scripture, the way I uh, study the Bible, or the way I memorize, if I try to promote that to you, it just becomes legalistic and weird. And Jesus modeled how he dealt with different people differently when it came to Martha and when it came to Mary. With Martha, let's talk theology. Let's be straight to the point because that's the way Martha was. With Mary, it was a little more lovey-dovey and and not as much theology because that's just who they were. And in the same passage in Luke 16, they both asked the same question and you see two right but different answers. We've got to learn to do that as a church. There are all types of people. And then in 17, not only within the church, but outside the church, we have to counter culture. And that means we have to know something about culture. We can't just go bury our head in the sand. We can't have a holy huddle and say, come join us. And then people are saying, hey, did you hear about Paris? What's going on in Paris? We don't, we don't, we don't think about the world. We just stay in our own little bubble. No, no, you have to understand culture to counter culture. And then you go against it. And so Paul walks into Athens and he says, it's funny. You have all these these statues and you have this one called the unknown God. Can I tell you about that unknown God? Who created the world? Who in him you move and live and have your being. And he countered culture and he said, you, you put it over here in this unknown category. Let me make it known to you. His name is Jesus. And then in 18, we have to beware of opposition. Jesus said it to them before he left. I say these things to you now, that so when it happens, you will remember. But if they hated me, they'll hate you. A servant is not above his master. So don't think we're going to go through life and it's going to be peachy keen. If they didn't like Jesus and you love Jesus, they won't like you. And so prepare for persecution. Expect it. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Which leads to chapter 20, leadership. That leadership uh, is needed. It was need- You saw it in chapter 6. You see it again in chapter 20. That this isn't a foreign thing, but you need leadership. But as with leadership, you need flexibility. That Paul was going to grab the gospel tightly, but if they said, hey, will you go pay for these dudes' haircuts and, and go through the rhythms so that they understand that you are not anti them, but you're pro-Jesus, he said, no problem. Shave my head. And then 22... And 23, you and I have a testimony over in chapter 9 and in chapter 2, and you'll see it again in 26. Paul shared the story. This is how I came to know Jesus. This is how I came to know Jesus. This, and every time there's a different nuance, but every single person in this room has a story to share. And in 23, you have relationships that I don't have. You have relationships that the elders of this church don't have. But you have them by God's sovereign plan, whether you're a coach, you're a teacher, Uh, You're a blue-collar worker, white-collar worker, whatever it is. You're in those relationships, not because this is the job you chose and not this is the path you went down because God has you there. Yes, you chose it. Yes, you're walking. But God has you there, and he has your unique story because he wants you to share that with the people around you. And the whole time he says, point them to Jesus. And then in 24 through 26, uh, there is repetition. Paul says, for me to say the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe to you. Repetition. 59 times in the book of Acts, you see the word of God. 20 times you see prayer. That if you were to look up prayer uh, in the book of Acts, it makes up a large portion of what it is in the New Testament. And it's the same thing. So when you come to Eagle Bible Church, it's, it's December 6, 2015. 
Say you come back seven years from now, it's December 6, 2022. I had to do the math real quick in my head. Guess what we're going to be doing? We're going to have the Bible open. We're going to be talking about the scriptures. We're going to be praying. We're going to be singing songs. And we're going to be doing the same thing over and over. The best do the basics better. Don't ever forget that. The best do the basics better. And we're just going to stick to the basics. Preach the word, teach the word, pray, obey, share. So that they would praise God. And then we preach the word, teach the word, obey, share. Why? And we're just going to do it over and over and over and over. Knowing 27, storms will come. They will. And some of you are in them now. Some of you have been through them. And if you haven't, you will. And we're going to be here for you. And what are we going to do? Pray, teach, comfort. Walk with you practically. Food, clothing, whatever it is. We're going to do it over and over. Because that's the way it is. And you know what we're going to say the whole time in those storms? Here's what we're going to say. I sure wish I could help you, but I I don't know if God's sovereign over this situation. That's called a lie. What I'm going to say is, yeah, I know. And what I'm not going to do, and what we're going to train our people not to do, is not say, oh, I understand what you're going through. More often than not, you don't. So I'm going to say, I hear you. Can I show you a few psalms that will comfort you during this time? And can I let you know that God is sovereign? You've been knocked off the ship and you feel like you're drowning. He's here. It may not get easier, but we'll walk with you through it. Amen? And so it leads to 28. Perseverance. Iron Man. Steadfastness in doing something despite the difficulty or delay in achieving success. Paul lived this. You can hear it in his letters. Look at Philippians 3. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, and I love this. Why does Paul press on to make it his own? Always ask the question, why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Check that out. You mean to tell me Paul could press on because he's already been purchased. And I love that stamp of approval there. Property of Christ. POC. I should do a song about that. Anyway, I can do what I'm called to do because Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, that doesn't mean we don't learn from it. And looking forward to what lies ahead, that doesn't mean we we daydream. We press on. For the prize, I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you know, Paul did that. You know what he could say at the end of his life? I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. And if Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, you follow me as I follow Christ, all of us should be able to get to 2 Timothy 4, 7 and on our deathbed say, you know what? It was hard. But we, we, I fought it. It was a good fight. It was for the name of God, for the good of others, for the power of the Spirit. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. It's not going to be easy worth it. And finally, though Paul didn't write Hebrews, we end with 
Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin clings so closely. Let's lay aside what we don't need and run with endurance the race set before us. You know, you, there's one thing you'll see at the Ironman. You won't see him with a bunch of backpacks on, like at the beginning. They got their wetsuit, and then this guy's got a backpack. What are you doing? Well, I'm just weighing myself down. I'm going to make it harder. You don't see that. Streamlined. They want to be buoyant in the water. And I had a video. It didn't come through, and I, I would have played it right now. It's the closest thing I can picture, and I know sometimes, just go with me for a second. It's the closest thing that I could picture of when a, when a saint who loved Jesus and submitted to him enters into heaven. You have all these people in this stadium just cheering this person on. It, it's been 17 hours. It's been a long time, and, and here they come towards the end. And they're playing Journey don't stop believing. I don't think that's what's going to be up there. And you're just watching this, and these people are just cheering, and they're cheering because they know what this person's been through. No illustration is perfect, but let's say it for the sake. Everybody sitting there has run the race, and they've gone before. This is Hebrews chapter 11. This is the cloud of witnesses. They are sitting there, and here comes the person down the tunnel. I remember when we first got here, I took one of the guys of this congregation who used to run and hadn't run. I said, I'll, let's go run. And we did the, the boulder, boulder. And you come in to the stadium and just everybody's there. And here I am having trained this guy and he didn't even let me win. He had to like put his toe out in front. But you're running through and you just feel the weight of Wow. And these people have gone before you. And here's this person at the Ironman. They've swam 2.4 miles. They've biked 112. And they've run a marathon. And they come in. They've laid aside all the weight. And they've run with endurance. And they're coming in. And that guy takes the mic and he points up as they cross the line and said, you're an Ironman. It's the closest thing I can get into my mind when you enter and you walk through. You're not going to hear Journey playing in the background. You're not going to get your an Iron Man. You're going to get well done. Good and faithful servant. Well done. And so let us run with endurance the race set before us. How do we do this? See the connection of the scripture. How do you run the race? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder who found it and perfecter who finished it of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. You won't receive a medal. You'll receive a crown. And so here's what I'll leave you with. The race, the race, it still goes on today. It didn't stop with Acts 28. The race still goes on today. Run with endurance. Run with endurance.